Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. The mantra, don't fight the Fed, which I'm sure you've all heard at some point, it's been around for a while now, but despite just extraordinary moves in inflation and rates over the last little over 12 months, frankly, a fair bit of criticism directed at those in charge. Investors are still assiduously following the Fed's moves, maybe a bit too closely. Dan Moore is a portfolio manager at Investors Mutual, and he's written a great paper on this. He's joined us before, and he's kindly joined us again. Dan, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Gemma. Thanks. It's great to be back. So, Dan, we talk about rates and inflation on this podcast and all the time, everywhere in markets. I was doing SBS News the other day and they were like, let's not talk about rates and then talked about it for 10 minutes. Uh, but let's talk about why markets follow the rates and inflation story so so obsessively, right? Why does it happen? Why have we been doing it the last few years? <laughs> it's a great question, Gemma. I guess... I mean, there's a lot of debt in the world. I mean, um, there's a lot of mortgage holders with a lot of debt, so it, it affects their lives in a material way. And then from an investor perspective, um, interest rates are what all assets are priced from. So the higher interest rates go up, uh, the value of assets will fall and, and vice versa. So it is a, a very important decision um, whether central banks raise rates or don't. But <laughs> the obsession is is sort of just grown over time, and um, the words of uh, you know, central bank governors is just <laughs> analysed um, to the absolute nth degree. It, it's um, quite amazing, and the market volatility of a change in a word of a statement um, is just incredible. So um, it's it really is interesting, and and um, what's sort of interesting is. The you know the central bank governors have made many mistakes over over a long period of time, but people still listen to everything they say as if it's gospel. That point about mistakes is it's a bold statement, but it's also it's the received wisdom now. For a little while there, no one questioned anything, and now everyone's questioning everything. Inflation getting out of hand has been. It didn't come out of nowhere. Christine Lagarde said it came out of nowhere and everyone's like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> we saw this. You get the data, right? Better data than we do. And we all saw it. But you could argue for a long time that central bankers were doing an incredible job because inflation was so well controlled, so well controlled for decades. People lived happy lives with no real experience of inflation. It gets out of hand and then we've all got something to say about the job central bankers have been doing everywhere. At the moment markets in the US in particular are expecting rates in the next two years to be dramatically lower than they are now. Tell us about how that's supposed to happen. Yeah, it's, it's a big question. Um, so, so right now, if you look at sort of equity markets and bond markets, what people are assuming is rates if we look at the US market, which is the most important because that drives our markets, our markets will fall, rates will fall a similar amount. So uh, they're forecasting rates to hit a maximum of 5% or around 5%. They're currently 4.75. And in two years, that's going to fall 200 basis points or 2%, uh, back down to 
um, which is a very dramatic drop in quite a short space of time. Um, and this is going to be facilitated by a significant drop in inflation. And we can tell uh, what the forecasts for this are by looking at interest rate swaps or inflation swaps. Um, so people are forecasting inflation to fall to roughly the Fed's 2% target um, within about 18 months, down from 7 or 8%. Um, so they're forecasting a dramatic drop in interest rates and you know, because of the drop in inflation. And they're also forecasting equity markets, are forecasting companies' earnings to continue to grow at a decent clip um, in FY23 and FY24. And that's despite earnings being currently 30% above pre-COVID levels. So how we would characterise this is um, absolute Goldilocks scenario. Feels like better than Goldilocks, to be honest. Like Goldilocks had porridge and someone left her something really special like a gift next to it. Um, <laughs> and the bears never came. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they just gifted her the house. Maybe she just got the house as well as the porridge. Something like that. It it does seem amazing. I've got two questions coming out of what you've just said. First is what would have to happen for inflation to fall that much that quickly? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and if you look at history, when you have inflation, it's pretty sticky. So for it to fall that dramatically, you would normally need a pretty big shock to demand, i.e., a recession. So it is very possible inflation does fall that quickly and then interest rates fall that quickly, but it would normally only occur if there was a recession. And and that's sort of what we've been telling our investors. You know, the markets are very exuberant right now, very optimistic. I think we're one or two percent from an all-time high. Um, the problem with the scenario we see at the moment is the only way interest rates and inflation come down that quickly is with a big shock to the system or the earnings forecasts for companies are correct and there's no recession, but then inflation and interest rates stay much higher than what's forecast. Um, sort of one of the two is likely to be incorrect. Um, for the whole scenario that's sort of priced into markets right now is you know, an absolute perfect scenario and, and would require... I guess, surgical precision from central bankers to uh, orchestrate the, this scenario. So the second question, because I don't think we've ever discussed it, and it's incredibly interesting as a data point for investors to think about, how on earth did earnings grow 30% post-COVID? Yeah, it's it's a dramatic increase. Um, really, it, it does help. If governments <laughs> uh, spend billions and billions of dollars giving stimulus into the economy and, uh, in, in addition, central banks printed trillions of dollars um, and pumped that into financial markets. So you had a whole heap of liquidity in markets and a lot of people with a lot of money. So people spent up big and you had inflation, so prices of things went up a lot. Uh, and companies, by and large, did very well. Um, made made record profits. Um, profit margins in 21 were all-time record. And we're sort of now coming off that high base. Um, that stimulus is starting to be withdrawn. 
from governments and, and also central banks, which were printing money, which is quantitative easing, are now doing the opposite, which is called quantitative tightening, which is where they are literally selling back the bonds they bought, which pulls liquidity out of the system. So it's a very different environment, which is sort of what we're telling our investors is despite the market being 1% or 2% off its all-time highs, the economic conditions today you know, couldn't be more different. You know, rates are 3% higher. There's quantitative tightening, not quantitative easing. Um, and you know, inflation's still very high. It's come off its high, you know, 8 or 9%, but it's still around 7%. It's, it's um, not an easy environment to navigate for companies. Should we talk a little bit about why inflation is so sticky? It's not something that is necessarily sort of a term that gets thrown around, not necessarily something we discuss. But as a consumer, you know to an extent you're not going to walk into a store and find everything 7% cheaper tomorrow. Certainly not Coles and Woolworths, for example. Yeah, it's a really good question. So, it's I mean, the best thing that the last sort of bout of inflation we had, a, a real proper bout, was in the 70s. And it took you know a decade to get rid of inflation back then. And th- there's a few reasons. One of th- The key reason is a lot of the influences on inflation can be circular. Um, the, the most common way is wages. So you initially have an inflation spike, normally driven by commodities or some supply-side shock. We had COVID. And, and then what happens, you have inflation initially, and then workers suddenly realise, well, my wages are only going up 2 or 3%, but everything I want to buy is up considerably more. And when those wages come up for renewal, you know, the typical enterprise bargaining agreements, which are in, in Australia, they're three years long, when they come up for renewal... Um, they're not asking for 2 or 3% anymore. They're asking for 5 or 6 or even more because even if inflation's starting to come off the peak today, they want compensation for being underpaid for the previous two years. Um, so what happens is the new EBAs, which are getting agreed now, we're seeing wages growth of 5 or 6% per annum for many of the companies we speak to, um, including Woolworths, um, that's getting locked in for the next three years. So suddenly um, people will have uh, that extra bit of money and and that sort of ensures um, inflation doesn't go away altogether. Uh, It doesn't go away um, immediately. The other thing to think about is there's lots of lags with inflation. So for example, there's lots of companies that have fixed price supply agreements um, for inputs for their business. And this could be anything from electricity, it could be steel, it could, it could be a really interesting one at the moment we're, we're noticing is Suncorp's got a fixed price contract to repair cars um, uh, with, a, with a supplier. And that contract's up for renewal in June. Um, the price is going to go up considerably. I mean, we're talking, you know, it could be 50%. So once those contracts get renewed over the coming year or two years, companies are going to face much higher costs and those costs will eventually be passed back on to customers in the form of higher prices as well. So there's lots of lags. And then probably the final one, which is more relevant today, is deglobalization, 
we've had a multi-decade trend of globalization, which meant the price of many goods has been, you know, declining over time as cheaper countries have been producing those goods. Um, right now, you know, due to the Ukraine war, lots of companies and, and countries are reassessing their supply chains and redirecting critical elements of that back domestically, which normally means that they, you know, it, it's a more expensive um, cost. And again, that will probably get passed back onto consumers. And that that deglobalization trends not going to end tomorrow. So there's a number of reasons to think inflation could be stickier than what's been forecast. So yeah, lots of uncertainty still to play out. Your comments about higher wages, and I find that really interesting because seeing some, quite a few signs of that, right, in some of the conversations we have also, clearly that's got implications for businesses. Like when we look at earnings, you're going depending on what industry you're in, obviously some meaningful proportion of your workforce is going to be asking for substantially higher wages. Are they going to be able to pass through those higher costs to the consumer? Are they going to have to wear them? Is that going to impact earnings? And and that as a you know, equities analyst, that's almost like one of the key elements of our job right now is to determine the quality of the business, um, how much pricing power does it have, and, and how discretionary or substitutable are the products of the company they sell. Um, which again influences that that pricing power, and look for every company is different. And if you add to that, if if economic conditions do slow, if demand for products do fall, um, does that pricing power get challenged from how strong it was a few years ago? When everyone's got lots of money, and interest rates are low, they can maybe handle higher prices, but. If unemployment's starting to rise and interest rates are starting to rise, um, maybe they won't be able to handle those higher prices. So pricing power, we don't even view as a static thing within one company. Um, it, it can change, uh, and that's something we're monitoring very closely. Yeah, that's such an interesting one. We were talking before this conversation about toll roads, and there's an assumption that that is a fairly inflation-resistant kind of business. But it does imply a certain amount of volume, right? When people go, I can't afford the tolls anymore and I will just not drive or find a job closer to home or work from home, perhaps that changes that dynamic. That's We've actually analysed that specific issue. So if you look at history in Australia for toll roads, it's actually not that long. Um, we're talking less than 20 years. And really we haven't had a proper recession in that time period, apart from COVID. <laughs> sort of you have to exclude that from the data because no one was driving. Um and the pricing power of the toll roads, um, there wasn't that much impact on demand. It was, it was pretty good. Uh, but if you look overseas to Europe, um, in the GFC, where it was that, they had a real recession, um, no, there was definitely an impact in terms of volume on toll roads. It, it, it wasn't a disaster. We're not talking a 50% decline, but no, there, there was an impact for sure. And, and, that, and that becomes an issue because a lot of those toll road companies are very geared. So... Whenever we do any assessment, you've got to factor all these things in and, and the level of gearing a company has um, is another factor you have to consider. So lovely segue into the conversation about debt. 
You know, and you said it right at the beginning, the reason we're so obsessed with rates primarily, always worth thinking about the people who write the stories as well, specific demographic of people who work in journalism, most of whom either have a mortgage or are likely to get a mortgage, uh, and therefore very, very conscientious about following rate movements and the impact on homeowners. They're not usually retired people writing the stories, it's usually the mortgage belt. And they've got a lot to say about the likely impact or the current impact of rising rates on households and what that's doing to demand and so on. Are you seeing that in companies yet or is that just news at the moment? No, we're not seeing a lot. We're seeing very early signs. So um, to give you an example, we're seeing no bad debts really at all in Australia. Uh, We are seeing very minor upticks in delinquencies in credit cards in the US, but very minor. In terms of the consumer, the retail results out of Christmas have largely been, you know, pretty good. And there's still a bit of a savings um, pouch, I guess, from COVID. You know, people haven't spent all that those sort of stimul- stimulus payments in COVID. So there's, a, there's still a bit there that people are spending. Um, but there are some signs um, and a early indication is actually – in the supermarkets, but it, it it is across other industries, but the supermarkets, the most obvious at this moment is despite inflation being six or 7%, sales growth for the supermarkets is, is lower than that. And the reason it's lower is volumes are down and people are trading down as well. So that there is some signs of a little bit of consumer weakness, but it, it's pretty early days. Um, and and the reason is interest rates work with a lag, um, and there's many reasons for that. If we go to the US, uh, not everybody knows this, but mortgages in the US are 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. So if you <laughs> – wouldn't that be nice? That's me just implying that that sounds amazing, uh, yeah, depending on when you took one out, however. Yeah, but you get to choose. Um, so when – when the central bank in the US raises rates, that has no impact on mortgage um, holders at all. Um, so interest rates operate with quite a big lag in the US and how they predominantly work is through the economy is they make the funding costs of investment higher and lead to lower investment. But investment decisions take time. Um, some investment decisions were already made. So it's quite a lag. So I'm talking about any company looking to build a factory or build a new plant. Uh, Those decisions are multi-year decisions and the higher rates can take time to change that behaviour. In Australia, it does work a bit quicker because we've got much more, we've got a much higher share of variable mortgages here. However, Australia's had this little quirk, which I'm sure previous guests have talked about, um, where about 40% of mortgages here are fixed, but those are fixed only for about two, three years on average. Some are four years. And back in 2021, a lot of people, and I mean a lot, took out fixed rate mortgages. And the reason was back in 2021, the fixed rate mortgage was below the variable um, for about a year and that you could get a fixed rate mortgage for 2% or less. Um, So a huge cohort of people took out fixed rate mortgages and those people are now coming up to that renewal. That cohort is coming up for that renewal of that fixed rate mortgage. So 
all the rate rises we've seen today, they haven't faced any of them. And this year, it's quite a large cohort. Um, their rates are going to go from roughly 2% to somewhere close to 55 to 6 in one foul swoop. Like literally one month they're paying 2%, the next month they're paying 5.75. So the impact of that will be significant on the consumer um, and the impact on companies will be interesting, but that impact hasn't been felt yet. So there is a lag. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're just looking at all the early indicators to see when that happens. So, so many factors that we're talking about, none of which sound Goldilocks at all, to be frank. And you've made the point, strong words, that central bankers have a dismal track record. Not the first person to say it, so I can say it. <laughs> but... Exactly how perfectly do they have to play this scenario? What are we assuming they can do in order for the current market predictions you're talking about of getting inflation back to 2% and rates back to 2% in, or back to 3% in the space of a couple of years? Exactly what do they have to do in order to make that work? Yeah, it's, it's fun to tease um, central bankers, but to be fair to them, it's a very tough job. Um, why it's such a tough job and why I think it's so hard is they really only have one or two tools to bring inflation down. So that's interest rates or quantitative tightening, which is just the selling of bonds. The problem with interest rates is, as I said, they operate with a lag. So when you start raising rates, you're not exactly sure how much of an impact that's had on the economy till nine months later or 12 months later. So what the central banks have to do over the next one or two years to deliver the scenario the markets are pricing in is they've got to get inflation down um, from 7% to 2 without hurting demand too much. They've got to bring it down just a little bit, but not enough to cause a significant increase in unemployment and not enough to cause a big fall in asset prices um, because rising unemployment and falling asset prices can be circular and, and feed on themselves and you have a much bigger problem. So they've got to do it just right and that's why we talk about Goldilocks. They've just got to get the balance right and why it's really hard is because there's so much debt um, in the system, whether you're a consumer or government, um, there's so much debt in the system They've got a, <laughs> it's a very, very narrow path to deliver the scenario. Um, it's something I don't envy um, for them. There'd be people who'd argue there's so much debt in the system because they cut rates so aggressively and didn't tighten earlier though, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been our view for a long time. Uh, um, I, I, th I think if you just solely focus on CPI and not looking at the balance sheets of consumers or asset prices, I, you know, there is a the risk that you just cut rates because interest inflation's so low, but then debt just got larger and larger and larger, and asset prices kept going up and up and up, and and then you become more vulnerable when the cycle eventually turns, which is sort of where we are today. So, yeah, it's it's is a problem, um, and that's why it's a difficult task today to get that balance so finely right. So we'll see what happens. So how are you advising your clients 
to manage this scenario? It's obviously challenging. Yeah. So to us, there's sort of two risks. The risks are that company earnings fall because they just overshoot, they raise rates too much and, and we have a, a recession or a, a harder landing. Or the other risk is they don't raise rates enough and inflation is, is persistent and high. So the two risks are recession or inflation. So what we're doing is looking to invest in companies that are resilient to both scenarios. So on the inflation side, we're looking for businesses with really strong pricing power um, who have a track record of passing on higher costs to their customers. And we're looking for businesses where they're non-discretionary in nature. So if, if times are tougher, the demand for those products and services will still be very strong. So they can navigate either higher inflation or, or a recession. And then probably the final thing is they have a strong balance sheet, which is useful in either scenario, whether rates are high, you, you know, you have those interest rate headwinds you, you don't have if you've got a strong balance sheet or, or less headwinds. Um, or if you have recession, demand really falls, um, at least you've got a strong balance sheet, you're not caught out and have to raise equity at the absolute worst possible time. Um, they're, they're the things we're looking for. And obviously, we want to buy those companies at a, at a reasonable price. And fortunately, market volatility normally provides that sometimes. We will see. <laughs> In the current environment, my goodness, it's all happening. Dan, you and your team publish ideas and insights along with a whole lot of data about the performance of your portfolios and all that kind of stuff. Where should people go to find out more about you and what you're working on? Yeah, uh, thanks, Gemma. Um, the best place is our website, uh, www.iml.com.au. Um, yeah, we've got a wealth of uh, research there. So, um, yeah, everyone's welcome. Dan Moore from Investors Mutual, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We've received some fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions. We love hearing about who you want to hear more from. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.